When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 246, and we are recording on August 25th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. That's it. (laughs) End of introduction. I never know what to say here. I always end up singing. (laughs) You do always end up singing. I saved this to say to you on the air. Oh, oh. My hold for Red, White, and Royal Blue finally came in yesterday. Yes! (laughs) I'm so excited for you! (laughs) And I'm already halfway done. (laughs) Yay! Oh, aren't they just the best? I will say my one quibble so far, and this is just maybe because I'm used to this being a thing in romance, but we don't ever get Henry's POV chapters. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just all Mm -hmm. from Alex's POV, and I'm so Mm -hmm. used to the switching of POV in romance that I'm just like, but wait, what? I need Henry brain on the page. (laughs) But that's just like the minorest of quibbles. It's very entertaining. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. You're a more attentive reader than I am. (laughs) Well, I think it's mostly because I'm like, I feel like I would ID with Henry a little bit more. (laughs) Oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I could see that. But yeah, Yeah. it's great. I'm so glad you like it. Yay. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, on that note, if y'all haven't read Red, White, and Royal Blue, which I can't recommend on the show anymore because I talked about it too much, please go read it. So as I mentioned, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. If you need a reading, recommendation, or request for yourself or your book club or as a gift or whatever, you can send those to us. You can email them to us at getbookedatbookriot.com or put them in the show notes, which uh, there's a form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line if you're using the email Or if you're using the form, just put it in big letters at the front of your request so we can get to it on time. We might email you back if we have already answered your show, answered your show, answered your question on the show, or if we're not going to get to it in time. Okay, we have a ton of feedback this week, so I'm just going to speed through it. Okay, so Christina recommends The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune for Oshetta, who is looking for extremely likable protagonists with a quirky town and, and found family. Eugenia was recommending for Anna uh, the Bear by Claire Cameron. A five-year-old girl and her toddler brother must survive in the wilderness after a bear kills their parents. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I just had like a minor heart attack. (laughs) That's real scary. Okay. um, Also for Anna looking for books with children who are the characters, the POV characters. Gin Patrol on the Purple Line by Deepa Anapara. I co-sign that. And the Flavia Deleuze series by Alan Bradley. Those are from Sherry. Um, I think Gabe, who is asking for books around exploring spirituality as an atheist, might like to try Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again in Science by Mike McHargue. Uh, Mike is a white dude, but he's very aware and outspoken about his privilege, and he is also autistic, so he brings that perspective to the table. Um, and Stacy has feedback for Heather, who was looking for books to help support LGBTQ kids and their families. All Boys Aren't Blue by George Johnson. 
Um, I'm going to skip the rest of these and we'll have them on next week's show because there's just a lot. So we're going to read our first question and talk about our first sponsor and away we'll go. All right. Our first question is from Maria, who says, I've been going through a lot recently with corona and quarantine and everything and just really need to stop thinking about my own life for a second. Unfortunately, most things I read or watch remind me of myself and my relationships. The only thing that's been helping is watching Avatar The Last Airbender and playing Papa's Bakeria nonstop, LOL. I just really need something fun and cute and escapist that I can marathon read and not think about the world. All right, let us have a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so for Maria, who loves Avatar The Last Airbender Hearts uh, and needs <laughs> escapist fiction, I am recommending the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett because it is very fun, it is very escapist, and none of the problems are real-world problems. <laughs> <laughs> I personally started with the Weird Sisters, which is spelled W-Y-R-D. And I love that uh, as a starting point just because it puts you right in with Granny Weatherwax, who is personal goals for the record. 100. Like 100% goals. The Witches is a sub-series in the overall Discworld series. And this is the first of those books. And I just like can't recommend it enough. Also, if you like Shakespeare references, this book is stuffed with them, which I found extremely enjoyable. But like they're like wacky, fun fantasy 
that just has like the silliest of stakes for the most part. They're just really enjoyable. Sharifa, who is the co-host of SFF Yeah along with me and who is the reason I started reading these books for the record. Not like I wasn't aware of them, but I just never read them until Mm -hmm. she kept would not shut up about them. Mm -hmm. She always recommends starting with The We Free Men, which is the first in the Tiffany Aching series, which I think Amanda is also where you usually start people. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you have options, but regardless, I think that might fit the bill. Amanda, what did you pick? All right. I picked The Novice by Taryn Matharu, which is the first book in the Summoner. Am I about to say series when it's a trilogy? I think it's a trilogy. This is a YA trilogy, but it's very young YA. So like my nine-year-old just read it and loved it. But I also read it when I was 34 and loved it. So, you know, this will appeal to all people. Um, It's like Lord of the Rings meets Pokemon meets Harry Potter, like all of those things in one in one book. So it's about a kid named Fletcher, who's a blacksmith in this very small town. He's an orphan and was like found on the doorstep of the town and taken in by the the village's current blacksmith. So he's been raised by this guy. um, And he discovers that he has this ability to summon demons from like another dimension, which sounds very like, but it's kind of common in this world. That's a pretty common magical thing. And kids who have this ability are taken to the Adept Military Academy where the government trains them to be better at it and to control their demons that they can summon and then join the military. He's super, super talented. And the demon that he has is like a little dragon named Ignatius, who my kid kept calling like Dragon Pikachu. I don't don't know what that means. Like my kids are very into Pokemon. I don't understand it, but that's fine. And he, Fletcher is like not a royal or an aristocrat at all. So his ability to summon like this very rare and powerful demon is a subject of much gossip and jealousy at the school. And so he's put through this like very grueling training. You know, it's very like defense against the dark arts kind of stuff. And while he's there, he is learning alongside all of these kids who are aristocrats and who did come by there, who did inherit their talents from their like very fancy aristocratic parents. And so like he's a nobody. And uh, so like rumors go around that he's a fraud and all this stuff. So he not only has to learn how to control his abilities and like be good at this career he wants to have, but defend himself from all these kids who would rather see him gone or dead at, you know, the worst. So he gets, of course, because of course he does, he gets caught up in this kind of secret political conspiracy that's happening. The, the Lord of the Rings tie-in comes in because when when his military training is completed, he's going to go join the military to fight the orcs. Like, literally, they're orcs. Like, from Lord of the Rings, orcs. There are a lot of elves. Elves versus the orcs. It's It will all be very familiar to you. I don't mean that as a criticism. It is very familiar tropes and magical ideas that the author is borrowing from other universes. But that makes it so comforting. And when you're reading it in a time where everything is the most, like, oh, I don't know, 2020, uh, I think that you will find a lot of, like, solace in these very familiar worlds, these very familiar tropes. It's super, super fast-paced. And so you're, like, here for it. And Fletcher is very likable. Like, it's not like, (laughs) this is going to be such shade, but it's not like reading Harry Potter where, like, Harry's the most annoying. (laughs) And I really wish he was not the main character because get your life together. Fletcher is not like that. Like, Fletcher is together. He's competent. He is not an obnoxious (laughs) protagonist, which is great. So that's The Novice by Taryn Matharu. Shots fired. Yeah, I know. Well, it just is what it is. That book should have been about Hermione. Anyway, okay. So question number two is from Hannah, who says, It is hot, 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 and I am craving some winter fairy tale magic. To be fair, I am almost always in the mood for this sort of thing, but it is very hot. I was the children's book buyer at an indie bookstore until recently, so I'm quite well-versed in middle grade and YA options, so I'm searching for a recommendation from the adult side of things. 
While I love the quiet, magical realism of the snow child, I'm looking for something more along the lines of the bear and the nightingale or spinning silver. Okay, Jen, what you got? I have a short story for you that you can get from your library or read online, which is amazing. It is Cold Wind by Nicola Griffith, who is amazing. It was published by Tor.com. I will leave a link in the show notes. And I am not going to tell you super much about the plot because it is a short story. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it Mm -hmm. takes place in like the depths of winter around the holidays, like Stolcest Christmas, New Year's, whatever, like in there. And it starts at a bar in in Seattle and you can like feel the cold wind like blowing off of Puget Sound. And this woman walks into a bar and I like literally I'm not going to say anything else about the (laughs) plot, but let me tell you about the feel of it. It is so chilly every time i read this short story and i have read it more than once i get goosebumps it's like got a little bit of like dark mythological feel to it which if you look at the art that goes with it you will absolutely see but it actually ends on a note that i wasn't expecting which i really loved and i think it definitely jives with the feel of both of the books that you mentioned it it has a lot of that it's just more contemporary because those are both right like second world fantasy sort of pre-industrial and this takes place in our world but tweaked with more mythology slash fairy tale-ness to it so i think it's definitely gonna give you that shivery feeling that you're looking for which i identify with because it is also (laughs) very hot here uh so Mm -hmm. again that's cold wind by nicola griffith all right i picked a winter's promise by christelle dabos which is translated by hildegard searle from french and i know that you said no ya and like this is pretty commonly classified as YA. it was marketed very heavily as europa's first ya novel I don't think that it's YA. First of all, Europa's not a YA publisher. Second of all, the main character is not that young. Like she's she's getting married in the book. So like I don't I don't I don't know where that like idea came from. But that's how it's marketed. So maybe you've read it, maybe not, but I'm going with it anyway because I think it's kind of perfect. So this is set in the future, like way off in the future where the world has exploded into all of these different floating celestial islands and that event was called the rupture. Every island is called an arc. The main character is named Ophelia, and she lives on an arc called Anima, where every arc has its own, like, magical system. And in her arc, objects have souls. And so when she takes, like, her glasses off, she has the ability to communicate with the souls of objects. And she can, like, tell their history and find out about their previous owners and all that kind of thing. And all she wants to do is take over the library of her arc and, like, be an object librarian for the rest of her life. However, her family, who are very powerful in this world, have essentially sold her off into marriage to marry a man named Thorn, who comes from a dragon clan in the Ark of the Pole, which is the northernmost Ark. And so she has to get on, or was it like, it's, it's like a dirigible, I don't know, it's like a big blimp, to go to this Ark um, and get married to a man who she does not know. Uh, and it's freezing, like it's very, sensual is not the word, not the right word, like you can feel the cold, right? The language is so precise that it feels very chilly (laughs) like it's just a very chilly kind of book and then she gets there she's not allowed to leave the house she's in a bunch of danger everyone keeps telling her but she has no idea why because no one will give her any information about why she's been selected to marry this man or why um you know it has to be her and not like literally anyone else from a more powerful family on any of the other arcs and so it's got a mystery element because you're there with her as she figures all these things out there's a lot of political intrigue uh, and polar bears. Like, it's just real chilly. It's just a chilly, chilly book. And I think it's very appropriate for a time when you're right. It's just super hot outside. So that's A Winter's Promise 
by Christelle Davos. All right. Our next question is from Cell, who says, do you have any recommendations for comics, short stories, chapter books, etc., featuring Superman and or Spider-Man for reluctant beginner readers? If possible, I would like to avoid those easy readers slash I can read books. I love books that explore these superheroes origin stories in a kid friendly way. In addition to fighting bad guys, the reader I have in mind is six years old and will try to read above their level if really interested, but is currently struggling. I told this reader a bit about Superman's origin story myself, like a bedtime story, and they were hooked. I'd really like to foster a love for books and reading this way if possible. So this is an interesting question. I, like, spent a lot of time talking to the comics channel in our contributor Slack about this because we all were, like, coming at it from different angles. And I'm not giving you exactly what you've asked for, but I still think they'll work. I actually have two recommendations for you, which I don't normally do, but the first is Superman Smashes the Clan by Jean Luen Yang and Guri Hiru. And Jean Luen Yang is, first of all, amazing. Like, all of his comics are just so freaking good. And <laughs> the reason I'm giving you two is because, as is obvious from the title, this one is both historical and extremely, like, political in that, you know, the Ku Klux Klan are the villains. And, like, I don't know how well-versed this six-year-old <laughs> is in American history <laughs> and how well you would like them to be versed. So, like, this may be too heavy for you, but it's great. It takes place in the 1940s. It's about the Lee family who have moved from Chinatown to Metropolis. And the two kids in the family, Roberta and Tommy, are, like, so excited about being in Superman's neighborhood. Tommy becomes friends with Jimmy Olsen. Roberta's having trouble fitting in. And then the KKK begin this string of attacks. They kidnap Tommy. Like, all of these things happen. And Superman saves the day with the help of the kids. And so it is meant for children. Like, it is meant to be an all-ages read, like, middle grade-esque, but obviously some pretty serious topics. So if that's too heavy for you at like for a six year old, which it might be, there's my second recommendation is Teen Titans Go Volume One, which is called Party Party. Uh, it is by Sholly Fish and Leah Hernandez Seidman. And I am a huge Teen Titans fan. It is not actually origin story. Neither of these are origin story, perhaps, obviously. But the Teen Titans are just so much freaking fun. The cartoon was great. And this is a sort of tie-in to the cartoon. The art is very approachable and, like, wacky fun. There are pizza monsters. It is extremely, like, hijinxy and just enjoyable, comic-y goodness. So two very different picks, both meant for readers of younger ages. Knock yourself out. Have fun. Uh, so again, <laughs> that was Superman Smashes the Clan by Jean Luen Yang and Guri Hiru, or Teen Titans Go Volume 1 Party Party by Shally Fish and Leah Hernandez Seidman. All right. I picked... Spider-Man, Far From Home, Peter and Ned's Ultimate Travel Journal by Preeti Chibber and illustrated by Stephanie Cardos. And full disclosure, Preeti is a former contributor at Book Riot and has since gone on to write Spider-Man novels, which is just 
so great. Amazing. This is just amazing. It's like her one true calling. It's yeah. what she was meant to do. Anyway, um, so this is super, super cute. And I think would be perfectly appropriate for a six-year-old. Might be a little bit challenging. Like if you want a six-year-old who wants to read a little bit above their level, this is probably fine for that. But it also has illustrations and it's like very fun and visually appealing. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Peter Parker goes to Europe on like a school trip with a bunch of classmates. And he's got, you know, Ned. And this is like a group journal that him and Ned are keeping with MJ interjecting occasionally to have her own entries. And it's really cute. And there's a lot of information about the different places they're visiting. And it's it's definitely more on the side of like, Spider-Man takes the break to go learn some things that are age appropriate <laughs> for a child, you know, and not necessarily like Spider-Man goes to, I don't know, solve crimes, although there's, you know, plenty of that. But it, it feels very much like a, a more realistic, realistic, it's Spider-Man, realistic take on what a kid who discovered he had superpowers, what his life would be like, like he still wants to do the school things and, you know, experience a different part of the world with his friends and keep goofy, jokey notes about it. It's just really adorable. And I think appropriate for this question. So that's Spider-Man Far From Home, Peter and Ned's Ultimate Travel Journal by Preeti Chipper. Side note. Side note. I went through that book with my four-year-old niece and like, obviously we didn't read it, read it, but she was so entertained by the fact that Spider-Man gets pooped on by birds more than once in this book like the the child humor (laughs) is aces is what i'm saying (laughs) like there's there's some really silly fun like very little kid like body humor stuff in there so Mm -hmm. just a supporting note (laughs) (laughs) why do kids love that stuff i mean it's just i mean it's so predictable okay Uh, Our next question is from Faith, who says, I'm a bookseller in quarantine trying to keep my Guilty Pleasures book club active and engaged as we have not been able to meet in person since March. We are a notoriously loud, slightly tipsy and chatty group. Well, that sounds like fun. We read YA, more on the Sarah J. Moss end of the scale, and this year we've tried to highlight different heritage months in our picks. Black History Month, Southeast Asian and Pacific Islander, Pride Month, etc. I'm running into trouble finding a something for November when we'd like to read an Indigenous or First Nations pick. All the ones I have found skew younger or are contemporary, but I'd really like to give them a few fantasy options. Some picks they've loved in the past include The Bone Witch and Sadie. We have some members with mental health and PTSD triggers, so please give any content warnings you deem relevant. We try to pick two months in advance. So if you can get back to me by September. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are. All right. Great. So Jen, what you got? So this is on the heavier side. Uh, as you will note from the trigger warnings, I am recommending The Marrow Thieves by Cherie de Maline. And this book has rape and sexual assault, genocide of indigenous populations, and medical experimentation in it. It is heavy. It's also really good. And if you're looking for YA with fantastical elements from an indigenous author, like, here you go. (laughs) It's very, it is extremely in that wheelhouse. The author is um, from the Georgian Bay Metis community, and this is, it takes place in like a future uh, after global warming has, you know, done the thing. And the the population is struggling with, they have lost the ability to dream. And if you can't dream, like you start to go mad. And the only people who can still dream are the indigenous population of North America. And it turns out that like their bone marrow could cure everyone. But instead of like asking nicely or, you know, making it a group project, the powers that be are basically like kidnapping 
the indigenous folks and medically experimenting on them. Not great. So the main character is 15, and he and his companions are on the run, trying to avoid getting, like, literally rounded up. And rough things happen. It's a dark book. It's extremely atmospheric. It is incredibly well-written. And I think it would certainly provide a ton of discussion fodder for your book group. So again, that is The Marrow Thieves by Cherie Dimaline. All right. I picked Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones, which comes with trigger warnings for racism and police violence. And this is another one that's like, is this way? Debatable. William Morrow is the publisher. They're not a young adult publisher, but the main character is a young person. And it is pretty coming of age. Like coming of age is kind of the theme. So the arguments can be made for both sides. Um, But it is a kind of horror-ish fantastical book about a kid who doesn't have a name, um, who is born to he's i think he's pretty sure he's an orphan yeah he's raised by his uh, aunt and uncle aunt libby and uncle darren who are native american they live in the south they're all pretty poor they're kind of constantly on the run from the police for various and sundry reasons some real some not um also plot twist they're werewolves hey Mm -hmm. and the main character who again has no name is kind of waiting to become a werewolf like the the plot jumps back and forth the perspective jumps back and forth in ages from him so like you get his pov when he was like eight years old you get pov from him when he's 16 and in his family history 16 is about the age when either you're going to turn or not like you're either going to become a werewolf or you're not because well for a lot of reasons i won't get into and so he's just kind of sitting around waiting for that to happen because both of his Both of the, you know, the people who raised him are werewolves and he feels very much like he doesn't know who he is or how to be a part of this family without that thing being true also for him. Like, what's he going to do with himself? All the skills he's learned, you know, all of his life skills are about keeping this secret and navigating this reality in your day to day life and like holding trying to hold down a job and have a family. And how do you do that when you're a werewolf? Some of the most interesting stuff in this book to me are about the like details of being a werewolf in the 20th century that you would not have to consider, like why werewolves should never wear pantyhose, which is a big thing that stuck with me years after I read that (laughs) book, why they're constantly chewing on mints and like how a relationship with someone who is not a werewolf would look all of these kinds of what like the way that they have to keep their cars in a certain way. It's just a lot of really fascinating details. It's got a lot of sociological commentary. And it's very, very much about class and race and the intersection of those things. So I think there'd be lots of stuff to talk about here. Um, And it's like creepy, but I don't think that it's, as we've said a million times on this show, Jen and I are kind of horror wimps and it was not too much for me. Like it was fine. It was creepy and spooky, but I at at no point was like, well, now I'm not going to bed tonight. You know, that did not happen. So I think it'll be okay for all of your readers. So that is Mongrels by Stefan Graham Jones. And now it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. 
But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All right. Our next question is from Noelle, who says, I have been experiencing a lot of loss over the past few months. That paired with all the pandemic madness and some personal relationship issues, I feel like I need a good pick-me-up book. I'm looking for something that will help me know it is okay to feel what I feel. Maybe something with a lot of feels that I can cry with. Fiction or nonfiction is okay. Just a good emotional book that will help me release some feelings and feel better after reading. Ugh, preach. Uh, Okay, so (laughs) this is an interesting question to think about because I feel like catharsis is really specific to the person. And I, you know, I don't know if this book will do for you what it did for me, but I'm recommending All Our Pretty Songs by Sarah McCary, which is part of the Metamorphoses series. And it is a book that did make me feel all of the feelings and like really feel them. <laughs> like I remember like especially because the main character has like such a lovely anger presentation just like stomping like putting on my stompiest boots and like stomping around as I was in the midst of reading this book and it ends on such a beautiful triumphant note that it really did feel like I have, you know, gone through this whole feeling cycle and come out the other side feeling good about it. So it is a sisterhood story. Um, It is about two best friends who live in the Pacific Northwest. One, the like sort of pretty and like, you know, outgoing and very extroverted one is named Aurora. And our narrator, who's never named, is sort of the sidekick role. She is a caretaker of Aurora. She, you know, is like the pragmatic one. She is very careful. Aurora has grown up rich because her dad is a dead rock star, whereas she has like, you know, she and her mother come from poverty. So it's they've had very different lives, but they are very bonded with each other. And then one night they're at a party and this guitarist named Jack like shows up out of nowhere and sort of becomes part of their lives in various ways. The narrator is like super crushing on him. 
but isn't sure, like, is he interested in her, especially when Aurora's around, like, everybody's always more interested in Aurora, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's, like, the underworld and, like, a deal with a demon kind of situation. And, you know, it is a, it is a retelling of Orpheus, except for with a female platonic love story. And it is so extremely satisfying. (laughs) It's so satisfying. So I just, I feel like it will give you the feels, which is what you're looking for. I also recommend all of the books in this series, although this one for me was the feelingsiest, which is a word (laughs) that I just said. But here we are. So again, that's All Our Pretty Songs by Sarah McCary. All right. I went in like a sadness direction with this mostly i picked the yield by tara june winch which comes with trigger warnings for childhood sexual abuse racism and genocide and this was very very feelingsy maybe maybe just a lot of bad feelings though now that i'm thinking about it but it does there is a lot of hope at the end okay so like i'm talking myself out of it no it's fine i really really loved this this was a new release in the u.s it came out in june it was released earlier than that in Australia and won a bunch of prizes. And, and it's it's oh, it's so good. So the author is Wiradjuri, which is an Aboriginal tribe in Australia. And the book is about a man named Albert, who goes by Poppy, uh, gone to Windy, who has spent his whole life at Prosperous House, which is um, was an old mission for Aboriginal people run by a Lutheran preacher on this river. And he is determined he's like in his old age and he knows that he knows that he's dying pretty soon. uh, And he's determined to pass on the language of his people to his children and uh, the remaining members of his tribe. And so he is writing, he's writing a dictionary. uh, And you are reading like, for many chapters, you are reading the literal dictionary that he's writing. And it is beautiful. It's so beautiful. And then so that you go back and forth between his perspective and then his granddaughter, August, who grew up on the mission with her grandparents because her mother is in jail. And she like fled as soon as she was old enough to she's been living in the UK for 10 years. She finds out that he has died. And so she comes home for his funeral and to kind of like take care of her grandmother. And she finds out when she gets there that Prosperous has been taken over by a mining company and that her childhood home is going to be destroyed. And so she discovers that her her grandfather was writing this dictionary and realizes that if she can find it, she can prove that the area has cultural importance and maybe save it from what's happening. Um, And while she's there, she has to confront all of these issues from her past, including what happened to her twin sister, who has been missing for several years. So there's a lot of sad things happening here. And there is a lot about Australia's treatment of the Aboriginal people, both in the past and now, uh, because you're going, you know, you're going back and forth from Poppy's childhood, which was in the early 1900s, to the present day. And so it's just, it's, man, it's a lot of feels. It's a lot of feels like there's there's just, you know, rage and sadness and injustice and up and down and like hope and family problems and drama. And it's a roller coaster. It's such a roller coaster. But it feels not roller coastery because it's like half of it's a dictionary. So you feel very strange about it, right? Like I'm having such an emotional reaction to this man talking about a fish, like a kind of fish that he has a word for. And why am I crying about this dictionary entry of fish? But you will understand why, because it's like very impactful. So that's The Yield by Tara June Winch. All right. Question six is from Aislinn, who says the All Souls trilogy is one of my all time favorites, but I haven't been able to find anything similar that's not YA. Fantasy, magic, romance, and a little bit sexy. All right, Jen, what you got? So it's kind of, I don't know why it's so hard to find a comp for the All Souls trilogy. I think it is hard, though, especially because here, okay, here's my theory. It packs so many different 
sci-fi and fantasy elements into it. Like you have vampires, you have witches, you have time travel, you have, and then you have like the romance and the sexy times and the researchy part of it, the book nerd part. Like there's a lot in there. So it's hard to find a series that does as many things as that series is doing. However, I think that The Kingston Cycle by C.L. Polk which I have talked about on the show before. We're going to talk about it now. Uh, I think it gets close in terms of the feelings I have about the books. And it does have fantasy. It does have romance. It does have some sexy times. And it has, you know, a feeling of the stakes that I think is, it feels a little bit similar to the All Souls trilogy for me, I think. So the first book is Witchmark, and it is a sort of like old-timey Edwardian England type fantasy world where like everybody rides bicycles around and there's like some, you know, technology, but like not a lot. It's not science fiction-y levels of technology. There's also elves and magic, which is cool. Magic, however, is strictly regulated and basically outlawed. And the only people who are allowed to use it, and they're, like, lying about using it, are the nobles. And everybody else, like, if they're discovered to have magical powers, is basically, like, locked away in asylum because the, you know, theory is is that it will drive them mad. And so they're not safe. So they, for their, quote unquote, for their own protection, and we know how that goes, um, they are locked Mm -hmm. up. And the main character, Miles, is a veteran. Ooh, that's right. This book gets trigger warnings for... PTSD and harm to women and children. There are like, so Miles is a veteran himself. There's been this war going on that is supposedly about to end. And he works in a veteran hospital uh, treating other veterans. And he has a magical gift that he uses on the DL to help. And he's discovering that so many of these returning soldiers are suffering from what appears to be a magically induced version of like PTSD. Like they have regular PTSD. And then on top of it, they have this like weird magical thing that is causing violence in some of them. And as he's trying to figure that out, he's also trying not to get discovered which doesn't work out, as you might imagine. There's a murder. There's a sexy elf guy. Like, a lot of things happen. Um, And I have read two out of the three books of this series. The third is out next year, which, like, it cannot come soon enough, quite frankly. And they are all—they're queer. They are, like— aware of social justice issues, but the fantasy is so interestingly created and the— uh, magic is really fascinating. The magic system. There's some really interesting power dynamic stuff going on. Like, I just think it's a really well and like thoroughly imagined world that I would I love to get lost in the stories coming out of that world. It's very immersive. And it manages to be feel good in some remarkable way, even though bad, dark things happen. It's it's really stunning how feel good these books are considering like some of the plot points. I don't know how C.L. Polk has done it, but she has. Uh, So again, that is the Kingston cycle. The first two books are out. The first is Witchmark. Highly recommend. Alrighty. I picked The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern, which I love and like have completely forgotten about until you asked this question. The difference between The Night Circus and the All Souls trilogy, obviously, is that the All Souls trilogy is like present day and The Night Circus is not. It feels, I don't know if it's explicitly named in the book. I don't remember, but it's very Victorian in, in feeling and in reality and like the way people live. So um, it doesn't have that kind of 
vampires at Oxford thing going on, but it kind of does because so the the night circus is about, can you guess? It's about a circus that comes at night and two very ancient and old magicians who have this like deep seated and long hatred and competitiveness with each other. And the way that they have decided to express that is by taking their most talented uh, pupils, magical pupils and setting them up against each other for like their entire lifetime. And like whoever survives wins and then whoever survives like the winner's teacher is whatever, big boss magician guy, gold star, like somehow they think that that matters. And so Marco and Celia are the two uh, pupils that these magicians choose to pit against each other. And the area of their gameplay is this circus that appears at night, only at night, out of nowhere. And they use their magical abilities to create the illusions and the attractions within the circus. So there's, you know, acrobats and uh, all of these rooms that you walk into that are very obviously magical except it's kind of a, i keep referencing harry potter but i'm just going with it it's kind of like it's a muggle world right so nobody really believes that magicians are real so they have to make them look illusory enough to be fascinating to the people who come but not so fantastical that people are like this is, am i high like this is not okay you know <laughs> because it, it needs to not attract suspicion but also still be magical and enchanting and whoever basically whoever makes the most perfect illusion in the circus wins the wrench that's thrown in to all of this is that Celia and Marco start to fall in love. And as they do, they can't control the way that their magic influences the circus. So, like, if they're in the same space, lights start to glow. Things start to, like, food starts to melt. Like, the heat of their, you know, attraction starts to do things to the circus. And so they've got to figure out how to do that. And, of course, at the same time, they are supposed to be sworn enemies. Like, they're supposed to be trying to basically kill each other with pretty umbrellas and stuff <laughs> in this weird circus and so you've got all of that big drama it's fantastical there's a lot of magic magic is like the whole point there's romance it is sexy there's not like if i remember correctly there's no sex on the page but it's very smoldery like their attraction builds in such fascinating and, and creative ways in the book because it comes out in these illusions that they create in the circus and it's such a sensory experience like i've seen people on pinterest who have night circus themed weddings now and like interior decor and like menus built off of the night circus because it, everything is so uniquely described and while the book is about Marco uh, and Celia and their like their love and their competition it is also like mostly about how you wish the circus was real because it like sounds real cool so that's the night circus by Aaron Morgenstern all right our last question is from Jessica, who says, I am looking for historical fiction for my daughter. She's starting school virtually this year and had a hard time with virtual school in the spring. I'm looking to supplement her social studies content with some books that can bring that subject to life for her. This year, her curriculum includes some history and culture from Latin America, the Caribbean, Canada, Europe, and Australia. She's 11, going into sixth grade. Last year, she studied World War I and World War II and read a few books on those subjects. Diary of Anne Frank, My Friend the Enemy, so we do not need anything involving that time period in Europe. She loves mysteries, horror, and pretty much every graphic novel I've given her to read. Bonus points if my advanced third grader can also read these wrecks. A few of her favorites are the Nancy Drew series, Bloom by Kenneth Oppel, Everything by Raina Telgemeier, El Defo by C.C. Bell, and the Greek myth graphic novel series by George O'Connor. All right, so I uh, have picked for you a book I'm reading right now. It's I Lived on Butterfly Hill by Marjorie Agosin, translated by E.M. O'Connor. And this is about an 11-year-old who lives in Chile. And uh, this is about the 
coup, uh, General Pinochet's military coup. And she, it's so interesting. I, so this, oh, okay, well, let me like give you some reasons why I picked it. First of all, like, you know, you said Latin America. It is a little bit closer in history to our times, but still historical. And it is illustrated and the illustrations are really lovely. So since she likes graphic novels, I feel like that is sort of a way in for her. And this book, I'm reading it right now, like I said, and it is so gentle is the word I want to say. Like Celeste, the main character, she's living in Valparaiso and she is like going to the cafe with her friends and like talking to her abuela and, you know, getting excited about food. And her parents are doctors and, you know, she they're doing uh, humanitarian works in the marginalized communities in the city and she goes with them. And she's like starting to learn about, you know, privilege and class structures. And she's also learned a bit about religious intolerance because her grandmother is uh, Jewish from Vienna and, you know, came to Chile to escape the Holocaust. So there's like a little connector for you. Um, Mm -hmm. And and it's so so she's like she's sort of aware of these things, but she's also, you know, she's an 11 year old kid. Like it's she's starting to learn them and processing them in her own way. And it's not at all an adult perspective. It's very much an 11-year-old perspective. There's also some lovely, like, little bits of magical realism in here that I just, ooh, it's so, like, atmospheric. It's really, really nice. But it is dealing, obviously, with a very difficult topic. I haven't gotten to this point in the book yet, but her parents send her to America because they are targeted in the military coup and they have to disappear and they don't they're they don't feel like it's safe to take her with them. So she gets sent to Maine. So now <laughs> she's like, oh, you know, she's an eleven year old who has had to leave her entire family behind and leave Chile and live in Maine. Like what on earth is she ever gonna see her parents again? How do you adapt to that kind of dramatic cultural overwhelm you know it's it's just so uh just tackling these subjects that i think will really make it feel personal um for your daughter and i do think you know based on what i've read so far your advanced third grader could absolutely find a way into this book as well so again that's i lived on butterfly hill by marjorie agosin translated by e.m o'connor all right i picked esperanza rising by pam muñoz ryan which is a it's not middle grade it's like a chapter book about a little girl named Esperanza who lives in a ranch, in a ranch, on a ranch in Mexico uh, in the 1930s. And her family is very wealthy. They have this huge ranch and this like beautiful house. And she's very used to like nice dresses and her family has servants and all of that. And then her father dies uh, and a series of events lead her mother to having to flee Mexico. And so they, they go to California and find themselves suddenly in poverty. It's the Great Depression. Um, she's lost. Her mother has lost her land and her ranch. They've left behind most of their support system. Her grandmother lived with them but could not come because she had an injury. And so they've got to find a way to like raise money to bring her eventually. But again, it's the Great Depression. And so they settle in a camp in California for Mexican farm workers. And it is such, obviously, a complete shift in her life. She goes from being very wealthy and not spoiled, but like privileged girl to having to do manual labor. Um, There's a lot of financial struggles. There's racism. Her mother gets sick and can't work herself. So Esperanza has to like do twice as much work 
take care of babies, like deal with farm bosses, all of this stuff that's like put on her. And she's so young, you know, she's, I think, 10 when the book opens. And so uh, about your daughter's age. Um, And I picked this one specifically because you said she's going to be studying Latin America. And I think that there's a very specific narrative about what living in Mexico is like right now in like our American, you know, pop culture and media and the news and coming out of the White House. And there's a very specific narrative about what people who are Mexican are like, right? Uh, Which is crap. Like the narrative is crap. And so I think that reading this book reminded me of an Eva Longoria, and this is so random, but this Eva Longoria (laughs) interview that I saw where she was on like Conan or something. And she was talking about the racism that her family has faced and that she has faced since she became famous. You know, people constantly telling her to go back where you came from and all this stuff. And she was like, my family owns a giant ranch and like mansion in what is now Texas. But we had been on that land for 500 years before the border came across, came across it. So like I lived in, you know, my family lived in Mexico for hundreds and hundreds of years in wealth until y'all came. So why don't you go back to where you came from? And I think that that narrative is so much more interesting than the fake one that we're being fed right now. So one about what life, I think a book about what life was like for Esperanza before her family got manipulated out of their land and what she had to deal with to come here would be a nice, I don't know, antidote to that a little bit. So that's Esperanza Rising by Pam Munoz Ryan. And that is our show. Hey. Thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you for listening. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. I am also uh, mostly on Instagram these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to y'all next week.